Welcome to Bob's Last Marathon, where Lena Chow Kuhar shares her first-hand experiences and practical wisdom gained from caring for her husband, Bob, on their long, unmapped journey with Alzheimer's disease. Through her own insights, as well as those of other caregivers, advocates, and experts, Lena hopes to help you meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease and give your loved ones the best quality of life possible. In today's episode, we welcome Dr. Stephen E. Arnold, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and translational neurology head and managing director of the Interdisciplinary Brain Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. When we talk about memory and thinking as we get older, many people comment on senior moments or trouble juggling two things at once. What may surprise some people is that in fact most, but not all, of our cognitive abilities peak at around age 20 and decline from there. A number of large and compelling studies show that memory span, processing speed, and attention all decline through our adulthood. But to keep it in perspective, this decline is within a narrow range, and some things do improve. Language, knowledge of the world, and judgment are examples of what does get better as we age. But what happens when people fall off these normal curves, when there's a clear and noteworthy change from a person's usual abilities, but they're still able to get things done? We call this mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. A person may take longer to get bills paid, do the shopping, or fix dinner, but they manage. But if memory and thinking abilities decline to a point where they need help with these kinds of day-to-day -day activities, that's when we use the term dementia. If you or someone you know is seeing a decline, it's important to get checked out by your healthcare provider. Some of these declines in mental abilities are caused by health conditions that can be readily treated. An underactive thyroid gland or low vitamin B12 levels, for example, can affect brain functioning and show themselves as MCI or dementia. These can be reversed. An MRI or CT scan of the brain is also important to look for strokes, tumors, or fluid collections, many of which are also treatable. But while these are so important to look for, they are a minority of the causes of MCI and dementia. About 70 to 80% of cognitive decline in later life is due to Alzheimer's disease. About 20 to 40% may be due to vascular disease, many strokes, or small vessel disease, which used to be called hardening of the arteries. 5 to 10% may be related to Parkinson's disease-related conditions, and another 5% or so to frontotemporal dementia. All in all, Alzheimer's disease, often mixed with vascular disease, is the major player. The big question is, is there anything we can do to prevent disease or to slow disease progression? What can we do to lower our risks for getting the disease? There are a number of risk factors for developing dementia in later life. Some of these we can't control, like our age and our genetics. But there are other factors that we can change as individuals or as a society. As a society, one example is education. Not just the years, but the quality of education seems to be a risk factor for many subsequent health problems, including dementia. 
The same goes for access to good health care. As an individual, there are many risk factors we do have individual control over. The cardiovascular risk factors associated with high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, low physical activity, and tobacco use all increase our risk for developing dementia and probably drive progression of dementia once we have it. Hearing loss in early, mid, or late life increases our risk. Head injury, of course, damages the brain and makes it more vulnerable to the effects of any other diseases that come along, so care and protection against injury is important. We are also recognizing how depression, loneliness, and anxiety can increase our vulnerability to dementia, likely through biological stress mechanisms. What is the evidence that modifying these risk factors can decrease the chances of our getting dementia? One important program that studied this is the FINGER, F-I-N-G-E-R, study, conducted in about 1,200 people in Finland who had either normal cognitive abilities or mild cognitive impairment and were at risk for dementia because of their age and some of the risk factors I just mentioned. People in the study were assigned to one of two groups, a regular health advice group or an intervention group, where they had both personal and group sessions for diet planning and nutrition counseling, exercise training with physical therapists, and cognitive training and counseling sessions with different games and exercises. After two years, the people in the intervention group showed a small but significant performance advantage in cognitive tests. Another study called PREDIVA, P-R-E-D-I-V-A, was conducted in the Netherlands in more than 3,500 people split into two groups. One received usual care and the other a more intensive intervention program where they visited a trained nurse every four months for six years for lifestyle counseling and medical care to address factors such as smoking, diet, exercise, weight, blood pressure, blood sugar, and lipids. This modest intervention ultimately did not show any difference between the groups in terms of how frequently people develop dementia. A third study, conducted in France and Monaco in almost 1,700 people with memory complaints or mild cognitive impairment, but not frank dementia, tested a combination of high-dose fish oil and group sessions involving physical activity and nutritional and lifestyle counseling, again with no statistically evident effect. So the jury is still out on whether making these types of changes in our health care and lifestyle in later life helps prevent or slow down dementia. But I'd like to emphasize a few points. These lifestyle modifications were implemented in older adults, many of whom already had some degree of cognitive decline. It's hard to overcome a lifetime of wear and tear from possible bad habits, and it is hard to change our habits overall. While we don't know for sure, we believe that if we optimize our lifestyle and diet choices early on, we can prevent decline as we enter the vulnerable years. The other point is that the changes people made were relatively modest. Perhaps a more intensive lifestyle and diet change would be more effective. There are some small research studies looking at this now. I am often asked about dietary supplements and natural products. 
There are literally hundreds of these on the shelves of health food stores and pharmacies and online that are touted for their benefits for memory health and focus. These range from traditional Chinese and Ayurvedic medicines to jellyfish proteins to sage extracts and other herbal tinctures. In fact, in laboratory mice and petri dishes, many of these have been shown to decrease the amyloid or tau pathology of Alzheimer's disease, reduce inflammation in the brain, improve metabolism, improve blood flow to the brain, or promote synaptic health. So there is reason to think they may be helpful. But unfortunately, these success stories have so far only been demonstrated in mouse models or other laboratory experiments. Mice aren't people, and we still await the clinical research to determine their effects on people. One example of interest is a class of compounds called anthocyanins, a group of antioxidants found in blueberries and other berries, believed to decrease oxidative stress, reduce the misfolding of tau proteins, regulate insulin signaling in the brain, and reduce neuroinflammation, all of which can slow cognitive decline and may play a role in Alzheimer's disease prevention and treatment, but clinical data is so far lacking. Another potentially beneficial nutrient is curacetin, which belongs to a group of plant pigments called flavonoids. Curacetin is found in apple peels and many other fruits and vegetables. It has been shown to have powerful anti-inflammatory effects, improve mitochondrial metabolic functioning, protect against cell death, and decrease the amount of amyloid and tau pathologies. It makes a lot of sense, but we are still waiting for data in humans, too. Polyphenols come in many different forms in a large variety of foods, honey, grape seeds, berries, and many vegetables and legumes, and have many beneficial properties, including prevention of neurodegenerative diseases, but the data is limited to cell culture and animal models. S-allocysteine, an organosulfur compound present in garlic, decreases endoplasmic or ER stress, which helps repair misfolded proteins. In mouse models, S-allocysteine has been shown to decrease tau pathology, protect against neuron death, decrease inflammation, and protect memory. The last specific topic I'll note is the microbiome. This is of huge interest now. The bacteria in our gut can produce a host of beneficial biochemicals. Prebiotics are non-digestible components of food that are beneficial to our microbiomes. Probiotics are live microorganisms that help populate our microbiome. Both are popular nutritional supplements that can regulate and enhance the healthy resident bacteria of our microbiomes. They can enhance synaptic repair and plasticity, decrease inflammation, increase neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and GABA, as well as have a host of other good effects on brain function. Within the last 40 years, there's been increasing evidence that diet and lifestyle changes may reverse the progression of coronary heart disease, early-stage prostate cancer, and other chronic conditions. Alzheimer's disease shares some of the underlying biological mechanisms of these diseases, for example, chronic inflammation and oxidative stress. A number of clinical studies are now being conducted to learn about how lifestyle changes, such as diet, stress management, exercise, nutritional supplements, and directed group support 
can slow down, lessen, or reverse the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. You can contribute to this effort by asking your doctor or social worker if there are trials in your area and joining as a study participant. Thank you for listening to Bob's Last Marathon. Transcripts of today's show and other episodes and acknowledgments can be found at bobsmarathon.com. That's Bob's Marathon without an apostrophe. Send us a note with your comments. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We wish you and your loved ones good health. <laughs>